Welcome to Better Returns, where you will learn how to escape the volatility of the stock market by passively investing in real estate like a pro. 90% of millionaires earned and maintained their wealth by investing in real estate. We will share real life examples from savvy investors so you can do the same. He still rides roller coasters with both arms in the air. Your host and my dad, Matt Hansen. I'd like to welcome to the show my friend, Josh Plave. Josh is an apartment owner and operator. He specializes in helping investors get their money out of Wall Street to Main Street. He's a general partner in over 1,500 units of multifamily across the United States. And he's got, he's got some excellent educational materials on his website about IRA and 401k, rolling those over to self-directed IRAs. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. He is the specialist in this. All of my friends that are syndicators that are in the business, we go to Josh for help on this stuff. And I think he's even talked to some of our investors too. He's that good. So I'm very excited to have you on the show, Josh. And so let's, uh, let's start with, share us a little bit about how you got into multifamily and then into specifically the IRA and the retirement fund, how to use those. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I, I guess I'll kind of start... Um, the two stories kind of go hand in hand. So I like to start sort of why, why as a 32 year old talking about retirement accounts, why have I come to have some like knowledge on, on the subject? So uh, I actually have been doing it for about half my life. Uh, started when I was 16 years old. I was working a summer job uh, that year and my mother and my grandfather who were both CPAs suggested that I should open up. They'd always kind of educating me on, on investing and they thought I should open up a Roth IRA. So I took all the funds that I had earned that summer put it into a Roth IRA, started investing from there, and I've been contributing to it ever since and have been using that account to, um, you know, to grow my future. Fast forward about 10 years from then, uh, as my, my mother and my grandfather, who I, that I mentioned, uh, they both unfortunately had passed away at that point. And what they did, they were nice enough to leave my sisters and I with their retirement accounts. It wasn't like a life-changing amount, crazy amount of money, but it was enough that I needed to make sure that I was going to be looking after everything they'd earned for their whole life. So uh, when I started looking into what I could do with my retirement accounts, the inherited retirement accounts, I realized that there was this world of self-directed IRAs. I started looking into real estate. And as I was kind of doing both of those uh, simultaneously, I learned that I wanted to passively invest in multifamily with my retirement accounts. That's what I ultimately landed on. Um, and so in, in doing that, I needed to make sure how I was going to best execute those accounts, how I was going to make sure I could make the best use of the funds that were there, put them into the lowest fee, most um, the easiest to use you know, structures, essentially. Uh, and that's sort of what I've, I've found and put together. Uh, and then I ended up bringing it to my own investors uh, as a multifamily syndicator. And, and that's kind of like what I focus on is helping people with their retirement accounts. Excellent. excellent. So let's, we're going to dive deeper into that a little bit more because you are the expert on this. So I'm a, I'm a guy that it's got, I've got a past employer that I'm retired or maybe not retired, but just a past employer. And that's the key thing. You can't have a current employer because like Fidelity and Vanguard, they don't let you do that. But if you have a past employer, you have the ability to do it. So you got a new investor comes in, hey, I want to put $100,000 into this wonderful deal in Texas. How would you guide them through that process if they got some money sitting in a retirement account? Yeah, so the process is ultimately pretty easy, um, and there are people along the way who will help you do it. So there's really two different types of accounts that you can open up, and they both have the first same first step. So the two different types are a custodian, like a custodial self-directed IRA, and then a checkbook control IRA. 
And so what we're doing here, and the reason we need to bring in a, the first step is a custodian. We need to bring our money from an old custodian that we're, the money is sitting at, and we need to move it over to that new custodian who's going to facilitate alternate you know, uh, investments of some sort. So like, as you mentioned, a fidelity wouldn't allow you to invest in real estate. So we need to move it to a custodian who will. And so the first step in both of these types of accounts is you're going to move the funds from one custodian to the next. If you're using the custodial IRA, it sits there. It, that's where it stops. You just it, it sits within the custodian. And then every time you have an investment that you want to make, you send them paperwork, uh, information about the investment, and they'll sit there and they'll uh, kind of cross their T's, dot their I's, do the whole nine yards on it and um, communicate with the syndicator, whoever is in charge of the investment and get some more information that way. If you are using uh, a checkbook control account, you'll actually be working with, I like to call them service providers, people who will essentially be doing this whole structure for you. Um, and they'll help you with all the paperwork and the transactions between institutions. And while you're opening up that custodial account, what they'll also do is they'll establish an LLC. And that LLC, 100% uh, of the funds from the IRA get moved into that LLC. And then once you have a funded LLC, it's the same as any other business that you would run. And you get to essentially create a, a checking account for it and wheel and deal that way. And you don't have to ask anyone permission to invest. You simply just issue a wiring, wire request with your bank, uh, pretty you know cheap and easy, uh, a lot more nimble. Um, but it just takes a little bit more time to, to set up in the end. How long does that typically take that process from when they decide, okay, I want to move my money? What yeah. So it's, I would say somewhere between two and four weeks. What it really hinges on is your, the custodian who has the capital right now, um, where it's sitting. There are some banks that'll move fairly quickly. If it's mm -hmm. at Vanguard, I can tell you it's going to go to the, towards that four week period. Um, it just, every bank is a little different though. I will say if you want to go faster, keep calling in every single day and ask them to process that paperwork, just be the squeakiest wheel ever and you might get some grease that's true i've actually gotten on the phone with um with financial institutions with my investors because they were dragging their feet and it's the smaller it's not the big players fidelity's pretty simple they'll cut a check pretty quickly but it was i won't mention the name some of those smaller funds out there that were like you know you're responsible for doing this they were really pushing them through the red tape and additional things and that's where it's great to have somebody like you josh that just been through this enough to say, okay, what they're saying isn't totally true. They should be able, they should be more forthright. Now they can drag it out, but as long as you're providing them all the data, and that's the beautiful thing is that you've got great stuff on your website educating you in this. So the investors know what to expect. So they can anticipate, oh, I need to do this, this, and this. Oh, and then it should go fairly smoothly, other than dealing with the 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 financial institutions. Because Wall Street does not want you to take the money away from them. No. They make money on us if they goes up or goes down, they get their fees. And they're, they're very resistant to that. Um, what other things, what other parameters? I know there's things you can and cannot invest in using your, your IRA money because it's still in the IRA bucket. You can't touch that. You can't benefit. So talk a little bit more about that. Some of yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's types of transactions. So these are prohibited transactions. So the way I kind of like to think about it is your IRA and yourself, think of them like two different people. And these two people, you and your IRA, they can't interact together. They can't do any kind of business. So there's there's one example I like to give that kind of explains both directions. So let's say you use your IRA to buy an Airbnb. You can totally do that if you want. Um, you cannot actually go and rent that Airbnb out yourself because you can't benefit from it. So there's two ways that it could work. You could either rent it out for a dollar every day 
forever and you would benefit quite substantially from your IRA's actions uh, because you're getting a low, you know, low rent house, or you could rent it out for $10,000 a night. And then you're pumping even more money into your IRA and your IRA is benefiting from your actions. So basically you can't use your IRA to invest in anything that you're involved in and vice versa. Um, yeah, you just need to make sure like if I'm a, a general partner on a deal, I can't invest any of my capital into right. my own deal. But then there also goes, that's it's not just limited to myself. There's also things called uh, prohibited, sorry, disqualified persons. Uh, and those are anyone who's a linear ascendant or a descendant. So we're talking about grandparents, parents and grandparents and children and grandchildren, and also your spouse. Um, any of them, they can't invest their retirement dollars into something that you're working on. So um, you really need to be careful about who you're investing with. But if you're investing with, uh, you know, uh, a peer or a colleague or um, a brother or a sister, that's fine. You can use your retirement account to invest with them in anything they're doing. Um, you just need to be careful when it's someone who's really close to you. Good, good, good point. Then there's other types of assets. We'll talk a little bit about those. I mean, we really, the show's focus really on real estate. And that's where majority of, I would say, most self-directed probably goes into real estate. But what other things can you invest in can't in general? Yeah. So there's, I mean, when they created the IRA, they were really, they never said what you could invest in. They just gave you a list <laughs> of a few things you can't. And so you've got life insurance policies, S corporations, uh, and collectibles like art, jewelry, cars, alcohol, stuff like that. Um, outside of that, if you think it's a, a worthwhile investment, you can go ahead and invest in it. I've heard of people, you know, buying racehorses and running stud operations and doing all kinds of crazy things. And as long as you think you're going to make money on it, your IRA can invest with it. Yeah. And as long as you don't benefit from today, right now, as your individual, your entity can, your retirement can, but you can't take benefits. That's the big key. You're right. That's good. Point. Exactly. Um, what are the questions do I have for you? Cause I have you here in terms of, um, what about tax benefits? You hear, oh, tax benefits are so great, invest, passively invested in real estate. But when it's a, a retirement account, what does that mean? Yeah, so um, it's pretty straightforward. So there, there's two different styles, essentially. If you're going to be buying, buying a house purely in cash, you maintain 100% of the tax deferred benefits of an IRA. If you're investing in something like multifamily or in any kind of real estate or investment in general, that will be using leverage that's incurring uh, a tax. And so the way this works is, let's say you're buying a house um, and we're gonna be using 75% leverage. So 75% of the funds that are being used to buy that house are coming from a non-tax deferred outside source. There's a lender right. or a bank. Um, and those obviously aren't IRA funds. So if the investment was to earn, uh, let's say a dollar, 75% uh, or 75 cents of that would have been earned by the outside source. And so it's eligible to be taxed. 25% of it that's earned by your IRA uh, maintains that tax deferred status, but 75% of it is eligible to be taxed. So that's a lot of people get pretty worried about that. But the nice part is that you can actually use 75% of all the losses that are associated with your IRA. So anything like depreciation, operating at interest expenses, anything that's coming off of the property as a paper loss or a real loss, um, you could use less in this scenario, 75% of it, and it helps to offset it quite substantially. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. It was a bit something people need to be aware of, and, and it's not as big an impact in that the thing is that 
because you the real estate is you know one of the best risk adjusted investments you have that your returns are usually a little bit higher so if you do have to pay a little taxes within your IRA it's usually not devastating it's still better than most other options and that's what's great i like your message there is that people get frightened when they hear oh you can be taxed inside your retirement account it's limited and and i i will um I know you're going to offer this later. You've got an UBITDA calculator, which is a pretty cool. It's the only one I've ever seen that actually helps an investor take a look and say, what would my potential impact be inside my IRA if I have taxes or based on the deal structure and all that, which is phenomenal. So I know you'll share that with us, the, the, the link to that later. Um, anything else on, on IRAs, things that you think people should be aware of before we move on to some something else? No, no. Outside of that, no. Um, I think my only suggestion really is if you if you plan on just being a passive investor with your IRA, if you're just going to be um, limited, be a limited partner into d different deals, I definitely suggest that checkbook control structure. Um, okay. If you're just investing in somebody else's deal, you don't really have to worry too much about disqualified persons or prohibited transactions mm -hmm. um, if they're not one of those people. And so I, I wouldn't worry about someone being there to kind of hold your hand and check on all the different investments you're making. You probably have uh, a, a very secure situation where you can just go ahead and invest. If you do plan on doing other things and, and you know buying like an Airbnb or other kinds of investments, you might want to keep it at a custodian because they'll make sure that they're running through all the different uh, scenarios and making sure that their money is, is kept uh, secure. Excellent. Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit to you're you're an outstanding investor and general partner yourself. I think last year you were in eight deals, and you helped a lot of people get their money out of Wall Street into Main Street. So let's talk about the deals that you like to do, the things that you offer for your investors. What type? What's your criteria for the deals that you're looking for, and what do you think are really good investments now in the multifamily market? Yeah, um, when it comes to kind of retirement uh, accounts, I'm looking specifically for things that will minimize. So that tax we were talking about is mm -hmm. called UBIT. And so I'm looking for deals that minimize the overall UBIT impact. Um, so we want ones that are value-add opportunities. Um, technically, the more value-add it is, the, uh, the lower the UBIT impact would be. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, in this time in the marketplace, we're recording this October 2022, uh, I don't want to look for significant value-add uh, deals. Uh, we're seeing a lot of you know, cost compression between a B-class a, a B property and a C-class property. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather be in a well-positioned B-class property that's going to be absorbing tenants from both directions, A to C, um, instead of looking for a deep value-add opportunity. So we're looking really for those B-class value-add opportunities I like to see deals that will refinance partial, you know, part of the way through, because when there's a refinance, uh, it typically won't be a capital event and you won't incur any kind of tax alongside with it. So you're going to get some of your proceeds or sorry, from the refinance proceeds, you're going to get some of those, uh, some of the capital that you initially invested, you'll get some of that back. And because it's not taxed, you can then go ahead and reinvest it very quickly. It keeps your IRR nice and high. Uh, and it just minimizes that that impact. That's really what I'm looking for when I'm finding deals uh, for my investors. Now, uh, specifically, we're talking about the UBIT taxes. Would it be better than if you see a deal that they've got maybe only um, loan to value? You want a lower loan to value. So there's more equity in the deal and less loan because the loans are the stuff that you're going to get taxed on within your IRA, correct? Yeah. So you'd want something that that's like 50%. If somebody, usually that's not the case, but maybe 60% loan to value versus uh, 
80%. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's, it's a tricky balancing act because okay. the, ones, the ones that are like a lower loan to value are typically not going to have much of a rehab budget. And the okay. larger the rehab budget is, the more that I'll actually offset the way that's calculated, mm-hmm. it actually ends up lowering your UBIT total with a larger rehab. So it's kind of a fine dance between I want low leverage, but I also want some value add opportunity. So you got to find kind of there's like a, a sweet spot there. It's it's kind of it's not I wouldn't call it an art by any means, but but there's there's lots of levers, and I didn't really even yeah. consider that. I was just thinking the the loan to value thing. Okay, excellent. So what other what markets are you guys excited about right now? What are the places that you like to uh, help investors invest in? What, what yeah, so. Markets? Uh, I mean, we're pretty much looking across the Sun Belt, but the ones that I'm most excited about are going to be in the Southeast. So we're looking from Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida. Um, have a few properties. Uh, we're under contract on our fourth one in the Sarasota, Bradenton area. Um, it's been, I think, for the last 18 months, the number one rent growth market in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's blowing up. And um, we, we keep looking for new properties there because it's it's got some really strong strong fundamentals, mm-hmm. seeing a huge demographic shift moving down there. Uh, and the uh, demand just, or sorry, the supply just cannot, you know, meet up with that. Right. So many people moving to Florida, Texas, and Arizona. I think Florida's was number one. I think it's number two. I think Texas is number one now in terms of population growth, just migration of people moving there. And they've got to have a place to live. And most yeah. people land in an apartment to begin with, at least. Um, what other criteria do you look for in the properties specifically you're looking at so you're in Bradenton like what type of properties do you guys like yeah so I I primarily will like like a A to B class property Um, I don't want anything that's really um, yeah it's has a lot of uh, what's it called Uh, deferred maintenance I don't want anything that's in in dire straits really so we want something that has good bones it's just the current owner isn't well capitalized you know, they're, they maybe have owned it for 10, 15, 20 years. And so they did their own, you know, rehab process on it, you know, when they acquired it, but they haven't had uh, a new loan that allows mm-hmm. them to go in and, and rehabilitate the, the entire property. Um, so yeah, we're not trying to re- reinvent the wheel by any means. We're looking for things that we can come in and give a nice cosmetic lift, help uh, the property meet the market so that when tenants are coming in and they're expecting a certain you know, quality because they've looked at, you know, five other properties in the area. We want to make sure we're meeting that, that level of expectation when somebody comes uh, and tours our, our units. Excellent. Excellent. So that's the criteria. Now you're a very seasoned general partner and worked with lots and lots of deals. So as a me, I'm a brand new investor. What are the types of things that a new investor should look for in a great general partner? And I know you are a great general partner. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> you do a great job of educating your investors, but what should they look for? Um, you know, what what does a good general partner look like in terms of to an investor? What should they be looking for? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's really two different things. You're, I mean, obvious one is is track record. You want somebody mm-hmm. who's been able to perform to the expectations, um, and is, is is there constantly, you know, looking in the market and able to take deals full cycle. Um, the the kind of unknown one until you actually get started investing, and you won't realize this until. And this is both for general partners as well as limited partners. You want someone who's good at communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a part of deals that had poor communication. It's extremely frustrating, um, at least on the general partner side. We make sure that our limited partners have um, the, a consistent type of message that's put out every month 
and they know the, the general structure of how information will be put out. And so it's really important uh, as a limited partner, you want to know when to expect information, how to read it every month, and to be able to pick up on issues that are cropping up or opportunities that have arisen. Um, because if you're not getting constant updates, you might be making a ton of money. You A, won't know it, and B, you're, it doesn't matter how much you know it's doing well, you're, in the back of your mind, you're going to be worried to some degree. So you want to make sure somebody is actually out there uh, constantly being very transparent about their communication. And you use a portal, right? Yeah. Some oh, type absolutely. of investor portal. T tell us what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, the the whole move to these really um, modern portals have been really nice. Uh, there's some great services out there. So basically, when you sign up for a deal, you get to do all of your reviewing of the documents and e-signing through there. But at the same time, we also push out all of our uh, updates through that portal. And so you have a whole, it goes to your email, but you have a, you can go into the portal and you have a whole historical look at performance for the property. You get to look at all your distributions in the portal as well um, and get a feel for how, you know, not just the property is performing, but how your own individual investment is doing as well. Yes, yes. That's a huge change because when I started passively investing in apartments probably six or seven years ago, they would get this 145 page PPM in an email that you had to sort through and figure out what do I fill out? I am a IRA or a single entity. And there's like four or five different categories. And it was so frustrating. Now we have these portals, you can go on, log on, and it will tell you, I'm going to be investing with a trust. You hit collect trust and it will take you to those fields you need to populate in that 145 page document. So I love the fact that I think almost all of us now use those because so much user friendly. And then 24 seven, they have access to all the information of the updates and all that in addition to the, the email communication. So I love that. It's great. You're on, you're on top of that stuff. I know you are, John. Um, let's see what other things we want to chat about. Um, we talked about the markets, talk about IRA, what you look for in a sponsor. Boy, I think you covered all the, any other key things about a, a new investor should be looking for? In a, in a Jeep? No. You got it covered. And you're so good at it that. <laughs> so, well, now it's time for our um, rapid fire five. These are just five fun questions that we're going to ask Josh to get to learn to know him a little bit better. So the first one is, what is your favorite vacation spot? Uh, it's the, the mountains. So if I could pick one specific location, I would say Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I like skiing. Um, it's got the, some of the best snow out there. Excellent. Do you mountain bike as well? I don't, I wish, I mean, I, I need to get into it at some point, which I will. Yeah. But. I can see you'd be a good mountain biker. <laughs> uh, are you a morning or a night person? Night person, a hundred percent. Kindred spirits there. Definitely. definitely I'm yeah. as well. Um, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Uh, okay. So if it's a specific dish, I yes. would say, uh, shakshuka which is an Israeli dish. Um, and I, I say it because it works really well for breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, <laughs> it's basically a little dish that's got uh, roasted tomatoes, an egg, sometimes has chickpeas, sometimes has some roasted chicken. It's, uh, it's a nice savory morning breakfast dish, um, but it's, it's super well-spiced and it's, it's really tasty. I'm going to try this someday. Yeah, you get to go to specifically to an Israeli type of restaurant. Is that yeah, something Is that's served in any other type of restaurants. I mean, you might see like a American fusion type of place, but okay. yeah, something that has like Middle Eastern food in general should carry some sort of a shakshuka. That's on my list. That's on my bucket list. I got to have that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do it sometime when we're in Dallas together. We'll have to find a place. Yeah. I'll look out for one. Okay. Uh, simple one. 
pineapple on pizzas? Yes or no? No. Hurtful. That's a little hurtful, Josh. I mean, I, I, I don't mind. I love pineapple and I love pizza. I, the two of them together. I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm, putting a, I'm putting a book together on that one. Okay. And then the final question is, uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to a new investor to help them get better returns? What's the single nugget, the most important thing, get the best returns for a new investor? Um, the most important thing, well, it's, I mean, what I ended up finding was focus on one thing in particular, I'd say. Uh, I, when I was, and it, it kind of, it bleeds into me also being an active, uh, general partner as well. But when I started focusing on specifically one asset type, uh, that's when I really started seeing more returns because I was able to essentially, instead of trying five different things and educating myself to 75% on all of those, I now am hundred percent educated on one topic. Once I'm there, I can now move to a second topic, focus right. entirely on that and get myself fully educated on that. And so getting the full understanding of a, one topic at a time, I think is a really key aspect to not just being a, a business person, but also uh, an investor. And so I think that also bleeds into being a, a passive investor. I, I, you can try multiple asset classes, but maybe until you're starting to see distributions from one uh, and you fully understand how the mechanisms of how that, that investment is working, um, I would at least suggest focusing on one thing at a time. Well, I think that's an excellent piece of advice that I hadn't heard is like, you're right. And same thing, like I want to invest with somebody that specializes in multifamily, or at least has, a, has been doing it for many, many years before they started adding other asset classes, that they've got a deep understanding because you're investing their money and your own money in those deals. So excellent advice. That's very good. Well, Josh, uh, thanks so much for all the value you've delivered to our listener. Tell us how people can get a hold of you and most importantly, your UBIT calculator, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, so I built a calculator that helps to understand uh, all those taxes, and you can kind of plug in information from every deal that you do into that calculator. You can find that at ubitubitcalc.com, uh, and then you can find more information about us at wall2main.com. And those will be in the show notes. Excellent resource. My wife and I actually use it too. And I've told Josh that, hey, we're going to go and read your stuff because I need to make sure I'm up on everything and you are always current and all that stuff. And you are the expert in our group on that. So I do appreciate your time today, Josh. You're wonderful. We'll talk to you later. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Better Returns, brought to you by Hanson Holdings. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review because it helps others discover this valuable content. If you would like to earn truly hands-off passive income, go to HansonHoldings.com, where we help you invest in large apartment complexes to grow your family's wealth. See you next week with another awesome episode. Have a great day.